Section 15 of Letters of Pliny by Pliny the Younger Translated by William Melmoth Revised by F. C. T. Bosenkay This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Andrew Coleman Section 15 Letters 97 to 105 Letter 97 To Calvisius I have spent these several days past in reading and writing with the most pleasing tranquillity imaginable. You will ask, how can that possibly be in the midst of Rome? It was the time of celebrating the Circensian Games, an entertainment for which I have not the least taste. They have no novelty, no variety to recommend them, nothing, in short, one would wish to see twice. It does the more surprise me, therefore, that so many thousand people should be possessed with the childish passion of desiring so often to see a parcel of horses gallop and men standing upright in their chariots, if, indeed, it were the swiftness of the horses, or the skill of the men that attracted them, there might be some pretense of reason for it. But it is the dress they like, it is the dress that takes their fancy. And if, in the midst of the course and contest, the different parties were to change colours, their different partisans would change sights, and instantly desert the very same men and horses, whom just before they were eagerly following with their eyes, as far as they could see, and shouting out their names with all their might. Such mighty charms, such wondrous power, reside in the colour of a paltry tunic. And this, not only with a common crowd, more contemptible than the dress they espouse, but even with serious-thinking people. When I observe such men, thus insatiably fond of so silly, so low, so uninteresting, so common an entertainment, I congratulate myself on my indifference to these pleasures, and am glad to employ the leisure of this season upon my books, which others throw away upon the most idle occupations. Farewell. Letter 98 to Romanus I am pleased to find by your letter that you are engaged in building, for I may now defend my own conduct by your example. I am myself employed in the same sort of work, and since I have you, who shall deny I have reason on my side? Our situations, too, are not dissimilar. Your buildings are carried on upon the sea-coast. Mine are rising upon the side of the Larian Lake. I have several villas upon the borders of this lake, but there are two particularly in which, as I take most delight, so they give me most employment. They are both situated like those at Bayai. One of them stands upon a rock and overlooks the lake, the other actually touches it. The first, supported as it were by the lofty buskin, I call my tragic, the other as resting upon the humble rock, my comic. Villa. Each has its own peculiar charm, 
recommending it to its possessor so much more on account of this very difference. The former commands a wider, the latter enjoys a nearer view of the lake. One, by a gentle curve, embraces a little bay, the other, being built upon a greater height, forms two. Here you have a street walk, extending itself along the banks of the lake. There, a spacious terrace that falls by a gentle descent towards it. The former does not feel the force of the waves, the latter breaks them. From that you see the fishing vessels. From this you may fish yourself, and throw your line out of your room, and almost from your bed, as from off a boat. It is the beauties, therefore, these agreeable villas possess, that tempt me to add to them those which are wanting. But I need not assign a reason to you, who undoubtedly will think it a sufficient one that I follow your example. Farewell. Letter 99. To Geminus. Your letter was particularly acceptable to me, as it mentioned your desire that I would send you something of mine, addressed to you, to insert in your work. I shall find a more appropriate occasion of complying with your request than that which you propose, the subject you point out to me being attended with some objections, and when you reconsider it, you will think so. As I did not imagine there were any booksellers at Lugdana, I am so much the more pleased to learn that my works are sold there. I rejoice to find they maintain the character abroad which they raised at home and I begin to flatter myself they have some merit, since persons of such distant countries are agreed in their opinion with regard to them. Farewell. Letter 100 to Junior A certain friend of mine lately chastised his son, in my presence, for being somewhat too expensive in the matter of dogs and horses, and pray... I asked him when the youth had left us, Did you never commit a fault yourself which deserved your father's correction? Did you never? I repeat. Nay, are you not sometimes even now guilty of errors which your son, were he in your place, might with equal gravity reprove? Are not all mankind subject to indiscretions, and have we not each of us our particular follies in which we fondly indulge ourselves? the great affection I have for you, induced me to set this instance of unreasonable severity before you, a caution not to treat your son with too much harshness and severity. Consider, he is but a boy, and that there was a time when you were so too. In exerting, therefore, the authority of a father, remember always that you are a man, and the parent of a man. Farewell. Letter 101 to Quadratus. The pleasure and attention with which you read the vindication I published of Helvidius has greatly raised your curiosity, it seems, to be informed of those particulars relating to that affair, which are not mentioned in the defence, as you were too young to be present yourself at that transaction. When Domitian was assassinated, 
a glorious opportunity, I thought, offered itself to me of pursuing the guilty, vindicating the injured, and advancing my own reputation. But amidst an infinite variety of the blackest crimes, none appeared to me more atrocious than that a senator, of praetorian dignity, and invested with the sacred character of a judge, should, even in the very senate itself, lay violent hands upon a member of that body, one of consular rank, and who then stood arraigned before him. Besides this general consideration, I also happened to be on terms of particular intimacy with Helvidius, as far as this was possible with one who, through fear of the times, endeavoured to veil the lustre of his fame and his virtues, in obscurity and retirement. Aria likewise, and her daughter Fania, who was mother-in-law to Helvidius, were in the number of my friends. But it was not so much private attachments as the honour of the public, a just indignation at the action, and the danger of the example, if it should pass unpunished, that animated me upon the occasion. At the first restoration of liberty, every man singled out his own particular enemy, though it must be confessed, those only of a lower rank, and, in the midst of much clamour and confusion, no sooner brought the charge than procured the condemnation. But for myself, I thought it would be more reasonable and more effectual not to take advantage of the general resentment of the public, but to crush this criminal with a single weight of his own enormous guilt. When, therefore, the first heat of public indignation began to cool, and declining passion gave way to justice, though I was at that time under great affliction for the loss of my wife. I sent to Antea, the widow of Helvidius, and desired her to come to me, as my late misfortune prevented me from appearing in public. When she arrived, I said to her, I am resolved not to suffer the injuries your husband has received to pass unrevenged. Let Aria and Fania, who are just returned from exile, know this, and consider together whether you would care to join with me in the prosecution. Not that I want an associate, but I am not so jealous of my own glory as to refuse to share it with you in this affair. She accordingly carried this message, and they all agreed to the proposal without the least hesitation. It happened very opportunely that the Senate was to meet within three days. It was a general rule with me to consult, in all my affairs, with Corellius, a person of the greatest far-sightedness and wisdom this age has produced. However, in the present case, I relied entirely upon my own discretion, being apprehensive he would not approve of my design, as he was very cautious and deliberate. But though I did not previously take counsel with him, 
my experience having taught me never to do so with a person concerning a question we have already determined, where he has a right to expect that one shall be decided by his judgment. Yet I could not forbear acquainting him with my resolution at the time I intended to carry it into execution. The Senate being assembled, I came into the house, and begged I might have leave to make a motion, which I did in few words, and with general assent. When I began to touch upon the charge, and point out the person I intended to accuse, though as yet without mentioning him by name, I was attacked on all sides. "'Let us know,' exclaims one, "'who is the subject of this informal motion? "'Who is it?' asked another, "'that is thus accused, without acquainting the house with his name and his crime.' "'Surely,' added a third, "'we who have survived the late dangerous times "'may expect now at least to remain in security.' "'I heard all this with perfect calmness.' and without being in the least alarmed. Such is the effect of conscious integrity, and so much difference is there with respect to inspiring confidence or fear, whether the world had only rather one should forbear a certain act, or absolutely condemn it. It would be too tedious to relate all that was advanced by different parties upon this occasion. At length the consul said, You will be at liberty, Secundus, to propose what you think proper when your turn comes to give your opinion upon the order of the day. I replied, You must allow me a liberty which you never yet refuse to any, and so sat down, when immediately the house went upon another business. In the meanwhile, one of my consular friends took me aside and, with great earnestness, telling me he thought I had carried on this affair with more boldness than prudence, used every method of reproof and persuasion to prevail with me to desist, adding at the same time that I should certainly, if I persevered, render myself obnoxious to some future prince. Be it so, I returned, should he prove a bad one. Scarcely had he left me, when a second came up. Whatever, said he, are you attempting? Why ever will you ruin yourself? Do you consider the risks you expose yourself to? Why will you presume too much on the present situation of public affairs when it is so uncertain what turn they may hereafter take? You are attacking a man who is actually at the head of the treasury and will shortly be consul. Besides, recollect what credit he has, and with what powerful friendships he is supported. Upon which he named a certain person, who, not without several strong and suspicious rumours, was then at the head of a powerful army in the east. I replied, All I foreseen and oft in thought revolved, and am willing, if fate shall so decree, to suffer in an honest cause, provided I can draw vengeance down upon a most infamous one. The time for the members to give their opinions was now arrived, 
Domitius Apollinaris, the consul-elect, spoke first, after him Fabricius Vigento, then Fabius Maximinus, Vettius Proculus next, who married my wife's mother, and who was the colleague of Publicius Curtus, the person on whom the debate turned, and last of all Amius Flaccus. They all defended Curtus, as if I had named him, though I had not yet so much as once mentioned him, and entered upon his justification as if I had exhibited a specific charge. It is not necessary to repeat in this place what they respectively said, having given it all at length in their words in the speech above mentioned. Avidius Quietus and Cornutus Tertullus answered them. The former observed that it was extremely unjust not to hear the complaints of those who thought themselves injured, and therefore that Aria and Fania ought not to be denied the privilege of laying their grievances before the house, and that the point for the consideration of the Senate was not the rank of the person, but the merit of the cause. Then Cornutus rose up, and acquainted the house that, as he was appointed guardian to the daughter of Helvidius by the consuls, upon the petition of her mother and her father-in-law, he felt himself compelled to fulfil the duty of his trust, in the execution of which, however, he would endeavour to set some bounds to his indignation, by following that great example of moderation which those excellent women had set who contented themselves with barely informing the Senate of the cruelties which Curtus committed in order to carry on his infamous adulation. And therefore, he said, he would move only that, if a punishment due to a crime so notoriously known should be remitted, Curtus might at least be branded with some mark of the displeasure of that august assembly. Satrius Rufus spoke next, and, meaning to steer a middle course, expressed himself with considerable ambiguity. I am of opinion, said he, that great injustice will be done to Curtus if he is not acquitted, for I do not scruple to mention his name, since the friends of Aria and Fania, as well as his own, have done so too nor indeed have we any occasion for anxiety upon this account. We who think well of the man shall judge him with the same impartiality as the rest. But if he is innocent, as I hope he is, and shall be glad to find, I think this house may very justly deny the present motion, till some charge has been proved against him. Thus, according to the respective order in which they were called upon, they delivered their several opinions. When it came to my turn, I rose up, and, using the same introduction to my speech as I have published in the defence, I replied to them severally. It is surprising with what attention, what clamorous applause I was heard, even by those who just before were loudest against me. Such a wonderful change was wrought, either by the importance of the affair, the successful progress of the speech, 
or the resolution of the advocate. After I had finished, Vigento attempted to reply, but the general clamour raised against him not permitting him to go on. I entreat you, conscript fathers, said he, not to oblige me to implore the assistance of the tribunes. Immediately the tribune Morina cried out, You have my permission, most illustrious Vigento, to go on. But still the clamour was renewed. In the interval, the consul ordered the house to divide, and having counted the voices, dismissed the senate, leaving Vigento in the midst, still attempting to speak. He made great complaints of this affront, as he called it, applying the following lines of Homer to himself. Great perils, father, wait the unequal fight. Those younger champions will thy strength o'ercome. There was hardly a man in the Senate that did not embrace and kiss me, and all strove who should applaud me most for having, at the cost of private enmities, revived a custom so long disused of freely consulting the Senate upon affairs that concern the honour of the public. In a word, for having wiped off that reproach which was thrown upon it by other orders in the state, that the senators mutually favoured the members of their own body, while they were very severe in animadverting upon the rest of their fellow-citizens. All this was transacted in the absence of Curtis, who kept out of the way, either because he suspected something of this nature was intended to be moved, or, as was alleged in his excuse, that he was really unwell. Caesar, however, did not refer the examination of this matter to the Senate, but I succeeded, nevertheless, in my aim, another person being appointed to succeed Curtis in the consulship while the election of his colleague to that office was confirmed. And thus, the wish with which I concluded my speech was actually accomplished. May he be obliged, said I, to renounce, under a virtuous prince, that reward he received from an infamous one. Some time after, I recollected, as well as I could, the speech I had made upon this occasion, to which I made several additions. It happened, though indeed it had the appearance of being something more than casual, that a few days after I had published this piece, Curtis was taken ill and died. I was told that his imagination was continually haunted with this affair, and kept picturing me ever before his eyes, as a man pursuing him with a drawn sword. Whether there was any truth in this rumour, I will not venture to assert. But, for the sake of example, however, I could wish it might gain credit. And now I have sent you a letter which, considering it is a letter, is as long as the defence you say you have read, but you must thank yourself for not being content with such information as that peace could afford you. Farewell.
Letter 102 to Genitor I have received your letter, in which you complain of having been highly disgusted lately at a very splendid entertainment by a set of buffoons, mummers, and wanton prostitutes who are dancing about round the tables. But let me advise you to smooth your knitted brows somewhat. I confess, indeed, I admit nothing of this kind at my own house. However, I bear with it in others. And why, then, you'll be ready to ask, not have them yourself? The truth is, because the gestures of the wanton, the pleasantries of the buffoon, or the extravagancies of the mummer, give me no pleasure as they give me no surprise. It is my particular taste, you see, not my judgment that I plead against them. And indeed, what numbers are there who think the entertainments with which you and I are most delighted no better than impertinent follies? How many are there who, as soon as a reader, a lyrist, or a comedian is introduced, either take their leave of the company or, if they remain, show as much dislike to this sort of thing as you did to those monsters, as you call them. Let us bear, therefore, my friend, with others in their amusements, that they, in return, may show indulgence to ours. Farewell. Letter 103. To Sabinianus. Your freedman, whom you lately mentioned to me with displeasure, has been with me, and threw himself at my feet with as much submission as he could have fallen at yours. He earnestly requested me with many tears, and even with all the eloquence of silent sorrow, to intercede for him. In short, he convinced me by his whole behaviour that he sincerely repents of his fault. I am persuaded he is thoroughly reformed, because he seems deeply sensible of his guilt. I know you are angry with him, and I know too it is not without reason. But clemency can never exert itself more laudably than when there is the most cause for resentment. You once had an affection for this man, and, I hope, will have again. Meanwhile, let me only prevail with you to pardon him. If he should incur your displeasure hereafter, you will have so much the stronger plea in excuse for your anger, as you show yourself more merciful to him now. Concede something to his youth to his tears, and to your own natural mildness of temper. Do not make him uneasy any longer, and I will add too, do not make yourself so. For a man of your kindness of heart cannot be angry without feeling great uneasiness. I am afraid, were I to join my entreaties with his, I should seem rather to compel than request you to forgive him. 
yet I will not scruple even to write mine with his, and in so much the stronger terms as I have very sharply and severely reproved him, positively threatening never to interpose again in his behalf. But though it was proper to say this to him, in order to make him more fearful of offending, I do not say so to you. I may, perhaps, again have occasion to entreat you upon this account, and again obtain your forgiveness. Supposing, I mean, his fault should be such as may become me to intercede for, and you to pardon. Farewell. Letter 104 to Maximus It has frequently happened, as I have been pleading before the court of the hundred, that these venerable judges, after having preserved for a long period the gravity and solemnity suitable to their character, have suddenly, as though urged by irresistible impulse, risen up to a man and applauded me. I have often likewise gained as much glory in the Senate as my utmost wishes could desire, but I never felt a more sensible pleasure than by an account which I lately received from Cornelius Tacitus. He informed me that, at the last Circensian Games, he sat next to a Roman knight, who, after conversation had passed between them upon various points of learning, asked him, are you an Italian or a provincial? Tacitus replied. Your acquaintance with literature must surely have informed you who I am. Pray then, is it Tacitus or Pliny I am talking with? I cannot express how highly I am pleased to find that our names are not so much the proper appellatives of men as a kind of distinction for learning herself and that eloquence renders us known to those who would otherwise be ignorant of us. An accident of the same kind happened to me a few days ago. Fabius Rufinus, a person of distinguished merit, was placed next to me at table, and below him a countryman of his, who had just then come to Rome for the first time. Rufinus, calling his friend's attention to me, said to him, you see this man, and entered into a conversation upon the subject of my pursuits, to whom the other immediately replied, This must undoubtedly be Pliny. To confess the truth, I look upon these instances as a very considerable recompense of my labours. If Demosthenes had reason to be pleased with the old woman of Athens crying out, This is Demosthenes, may not I then, be allowed to congratulate myself upon the celebrity my name has acquired. Yes, my friend, I will rejoice in it, and without scruple admit that I do. As I only mention the judgment of others, not my own, I am not afraid of incurring the censure of vanity, especially from you who, whilst envying no man's reputation, are particularly zealous for mine. Farewell. Letter 105 to Sabinianus I greatly approve of your having, in compliance with my letter, 
received again into your favour and family a discarded freedman, who you once admitted into a share of your affection. This will afford you, I doubt not, great satisfaction. It certainly has me, both as a proof that your passion can be controlled, and as an instance of your paying so much regard to me as either to yield to my authority or to comply with my request. Let me, therefore, at once both praise and thank you. At the same time, I must advise you to be disposed for the future to pardon the faults of your people, though there should be none to intercede in their behalf. Farewell. End of section 15